Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come standing in the power of your name. Father, we thank you that we are able to come and stand underneath your word, and we pray that your word, as you have promised, would not return back to you void, but we pray that we would be changed, conformed more to the image of your Son from your words that are going out this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So brothers and sisters, we've got a, a passage that we're looking at this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to start by actually reading a few verses that come at the end of this passage. So if you want to go ahead and open up to 2 Peter chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 1 through 4, but I'd like to start reading in verse 12, and this will help shape our understanding of what we're about to hear. In verse 12, Peter writes, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been strengthened in the truth which is present in you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So today, we get to look at and study a vital passage that it's included with Peter's final remarks that he gives to the believers. He is laying aside his earthly dwelling. These, these are some of the last days that he has on earth. And as he is going out, the passage we are looking at today is one of the messages that he wanted to make sure that his readers and even you and I would be able to call to mind even after he is gone. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and stand, look at chapter 1 with me, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4 of Peter's final charge to the believers. So in verse 1, it says, Simeon Peter a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the full knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You may be seated. So verse 1 this may jump out at you, but he says, Simeon Peter. So Simeon Peter. And it may 
read this way in your translation, depending on what you have. New uh, American Standard and the King James Version, they'll say Simon Peter, which um, that's just the more familiar name that we're familiar with with Peter. But some of the other translations will actually say Simeon, which is the literal uh, transliteration of what we would see um, in the text. And Simeon, it's just a spelling variation of Simon's name. It's used by James in Acts chapter 15 when he's addressing the church. And so it's not something, if it did stand out to you in your text, it's not something that, that you need to be concerned about. We just simply know that this is Simon Peter. This is Simon who is called Peter by Jesus Christ. He's one of the 12 and one of the head leaders of the beginning church in the book of Acts. What is significant, though, is how Peter introduces himself in the next few words. Look at how he refers to himself in verse 1. He says, Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. A slave and apostle. Now, slave, we have a connotation in English, especially with our American culture, but the slave here, it actually has a little bit broader term than sometimes we're used to. It could mean just a, a house or a laboring servant, but it might also be a bond servant, someone who has willingly placed themselves under another in servitude, and it might be for a set period to pay off a debt, or it could also be a slave in every sense of the word that you and I are more familiar with just in our culture. Where no longer are you your own. You are the property of the master. You could have been captured in war. You might have been purchased at a market. You could have been bought with a price. Or you could even have been born a slave. And you will remain, remain a slave until the day that you die. Or the day that you might be set free. But this strongest sense of slave, this is the one that is most fitting in our understanding of the Christian faith. We are bought with a price. We are born again as slaves of God. And so to understand the intent of the author, the way that he would mean the, the word slave in, in anything that he would write, we actually would need to know, whether it was a slave or a servant, know what the context is saying. And each of these different uses, they can actually be found in different places of Scripture. But all of the terms, they all have this in common. Each slave, each servant, their life would not be their own. They would say, my life is not to live according to my own desires and plans. I only live according to my master and his desires and his plans. In the biblical and New Testament context, we know that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us this. Christians are the slave of Christ. And William Barclay, he actually writes and describes, he says, to call the Christian the slave of God means that he is inalienably possessed by God. In the ancient world, a master possessed his slave, and in the same sense, he possessed tools. The Christian inalienably belongs to God. So like Peter, if you are a believer, 
You are God's slave. I am God's slave. You and I are alike like Peter in our position before God. We are his slaves. Except Peter then actually deviates from the sameness that you and I share with him in these next words. He says, Peter is a slave of Christ, but he also refers to himself as an apostle. Now, an apostle is a word used of one sent from someone else. They're being sent with credentials and sent on a mission to represent the one who is sending them. Individual churches, even in the New Testament time, can send out messengers and ministers, and they're referred to as apostles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 33, it references those who are apostles of the church. In Philippians 2, verse 25, Epaphroditus is the church's apostle and minister to my need. This is what Paul wrote. The church has sent these people out as official representatives and ministers on behalf of the church. So today, some people, including Paul Washer, they actually see missionaries in our culture, missionaries as those who are being sent out from a local church to carry the gospel and minister on behalf of the sending church. They see these missionaries as today's versions of apostles of the church. And so we know Dexter May. Dexter was sent out from our church to minister on our behalf, in our stead, in Uganda. And so we can see Dexter as filling this role as an apostle or a minister being sent out from us to minister on our behalf in another land. The churches in Antioch, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Paul, and they sent them out to minister to the minister the gospel. And they were appointed by the church for gospel ministry. And this is why Luke wrote in Acts chapter 14, he called them the apostles, Barnabas and Paul. And this, these would be apostles of the church. Paul and Barnabas, Epaphroditus, our brothers from Corinth, we could say Dexter May from Calvary, each of these were sent out from a local church, and each of these can be seen as messengers or missionaries or apostles of the local church. But Peter, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was sent by him. His credentials were the forms of miracles that we saw played out in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5. He was on a mission. This mission was a mission to proclaim the good news of salvation. You and I, we are slaves of Christ, just like Peter was. But Peter, unlike you and I, is in a very select and exclusive group. He is in a, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the only other person we see in Scripture who calls himself or is called a slave and apostle is the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 1 and Titus chapter 1, both of these places, Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ Jesus or a slave of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. So Peter is the apostle of Jesus Christ. And think a little bit about his, his history. He was 
We find in this same chapter that we're studying, in verse 16, an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. And he heard God the Father proclaim on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. Again, chapter seven, or verses 17 and 18 of this chapter. Jesus told him, from now on, you will be catching men. You will be a fisher of men. He was on a mission from Christ. And when he came in after get, receiving this charge, it says that they brought their boats to the land and they left everything that they had and followed Christ. Peter was there in Acts 1.8 when the promise to receive the Holy Spirit would come upon him and the promise that he would be a witness of Christ was given to him. And Peter was there in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down and Peter was the one who preached being filled with the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Peter saw the Holy Spirit come upon the Samaritan believers when he laid his hands on them and prayed for them in Acts chapter 8. Peter saw the Holy Spirit come upon Cornelius's Gentile household when again he proclaimed the gospel to them in Acts chapter 10. And we find in Acts chapter 5, verses 29 and following, that Peter stands up to the Sanhedrin the group of men who had just killed Christ two months prior, and he boldly proclaims, we must obey God rather than men, rather than you. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. This one God exalted to his right hand as a leader and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who obey him. Those are the words of Peter. Starting down and staring down those who had the authority to end his life and kill his body. So, brothers and sisters, I'm a slave of Christ. You are a slave of Christ. Peter is a slave of Christ. But he is also an apostle of Christ. Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the question might be, Jeremy, why are we focusing so much on this? It is because of where Peter goes next. In light of Peter being a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, he uses his position to show his readers the first of four gracious gifts that God has bestowed upon you in salvation. He's going to show that there is a precious faith that God has given to you. He has given grace and peace in your salvation. He has given life's needs to you. And he has given glorious promises. So let's look at the first gracious gift that God has bestowed on you in your salvation. And that is, verse 1, a precious faith. After introducing himself as a slave and an apostle, to Jesus Christ, look at how Peter describes himself and, or, and describes the recipients of the letters. He says, 
to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. Peter says, I am a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, but let there be no mistake. You are like me. Your faith is like my faith. You have received the same kind of faith that I have. The letters of First and Second Peter, but also of Jude, of First John, other, other books as well, they were all written in an environment where the Gnostic heresy, where Gnosticism was trying to make its way into the church. In Gnosticism, it basically taught that there are two types of people within the body. There is a special knowledge that I have that you don't have. There are two classes, the haves who have this special knowledge and the have-nots, those who have not received this special knowledge. And what Peter is doing right here in the introduction he missed and only took off the Gnostic heresy but unlike in the garden where he missed and only took off the ear Peter takes off the head of Gnosticism with this um, truth that he's showing right here it says Peter reassures that the faith of the apostles of Jesus Christ is the exact same faith as every other believer it's the exact same faith that you and I have and live in. And Peter's faith, it is an amazing gift, if you think about it. Not only was he transformed from being a sometimes brash, sometimes selfish, sometimes fearful man, but he was dead in his trespasses and sins. Peter was following after the course of this world. Peter was following after Satan, bound in chains that he was unable to break, headed for a judgment that he was unable to escape. But God, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved Peter, God made him alive together with Christ. By grace he was saved. And he was seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. It was by grace he was saved through faith. And this was a gift of God, not as a result of Peter's works, lest Peter would boast. Peter was made a new creation. The old was gone. New had come. Peter was made a slave of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not forget, if you have been saved, you have received that same kind of faith as the Apostle Peter. The same kind of faith, depending on your translation, you may be reading the same kind of faith or a faith of equal standing or a like precious faith. And each one of these, they just grab different nuances of the word, the same kind. You could also add to that the same kind of honorable faith. Each believer has received the same precious, honorable faith 
as every other believer. And don't skip over this truth. This precious gift of salvation, this precious faith has been received. It was not earned. It was granted. This term actually means it was allocated by divine choice or lot. When the soldiers were casting lots for Jesus' clothing, for his garments, this is the word that was used. So we often will think about Peter and talk about Peter and his shortcomings and his failures. So I want to ask a question. Do you think that Peter saw himself in the same way that we do, full of faults? And I would say, of course he did. And so much more than you and I do. He recognized that none of his faith came from himself. It was by divine choice, divine lot, that it was cast into his lap. It was a gift of God's grace. And look again at verse 1. It says, Peter recognizes that just like I hope you and I recognize, that faith was received by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Note this, the faith that comes to us comes by another's righteousness. And this righteousness, it is the righteousness of our God and our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. And the grammar here, it's actually very clear that this is not talking about two separate people. It's not saying our God, the Father, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Rather, it is clear that Jesus Christ is our God and Jesus Christ is our Savior. And we see the same truth taught in Titus chapter 2, um, where in starting verse 13 it says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our faith was received by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is our God. And, and this is actually neat. In Isaiah 49 and verse 6, and you don't need to turn there, but I'll, I'll describe it to you. We actually have the salvation of Israel is called God's salvation or Yahweh's salvation. God is the one who is the Savior. But in verse, verse 6, the one he uses to perform the saving Isaiah is his servant. So, in other words, when God uses someone else to save people, God is the one who is still the Savior. The person he uses is his servant. And with this understanding, we can actually look and see more clearly what, Paul, what Peter is saying. He's saying our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is just doubly reinforcing Christ's deity. God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ, both are titles reserved for God. Both are titles that Peter gives to Jesus right here. And so what I looked for this week, I wanted to make sure that I shouldn't be reading and seeing God the Father and Jesus, our, Jesus is our Savior. And so I actively was looking for someone who held that position, and I found no one. 
everyone understood that when you're reading this in the original languages, it is saying, Christ is God and Christ is my Savior. And I actually found one person who said, I'm going to quote him. He says, what Second Peter means by calling Jesus God, we do not know. That Jesus is called God is surprising. I ask, is it surprising? Let me just explain to you what 2 Peter means when he's saying this. He's saying that God's gracious gift has been bestowed on you in salvation, and this gracious gift from God is a precious faith. It's the same kind, the same value, and the same honor as the apostles' faith. It's bestowed on you as a gift by God's divine allotment. It is made possible by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God himself. Jesus Christ is your Savior. Peter's teaching what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 where he said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, our righteous God, saved us by his righteousness. This is a gracious gift of God that is given and bestowed upon you in your salvation. It is a precious faith given to you by the righteousness of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But let's look at verse 2, where we see the second gift. Verse 2 shows the second gift of grace and peace. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So after introducing himself as the writer, and after identifying who the readers are, Peter moves to the introductory blessing that you would typically find in this type of ancient letter. It's, in this case, this blessing is a prayer for the readers. Verse 2, he says, grace to you, or grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, if you have watched any of the chosen, you've undoubtedly seen the common Hebrew greeting of shalom. Shalom is peace. Another greeting that was common in the Greek world at this time, and we actually see this played out in, in James 1.1, is just simply greetings. Or in Greek, it would be Cairo. And so you have two common greetings of the day. In the Hebrew greeting of peace, the Greek greeting of greetings, Cairo. And so what the first century church did is they took these two greetings and exchanged Cairo for charis or grace. And so you now have a greeting that the first century church adopted as their own, and they're saying grace, charis, and peace grace and peace to you. And this is a greeting, but it's a greeting that actually means something. There's something behind it. This is, instead of just saying greetings or greetings, shalom, it is grace 
and peace. You might actually see the equivalent of this if you and your emails exchanged sincerely for in him or by the grace of God before you sign your name. And you could have many other meaningful phrases. But what it is doing, it's taking a common greeting and putting Christian theology and meaning behind it. Grace and peace. It had become the regular greeting in the early church. And we see the identical greeting actually in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. But it was also a favorite of Paul, who in so many of his writings, he says in Romans 1, grace to you and peace. In 1 and 2 Corinthians, grace to you and peace. You have in Galatians, grace to you and peace. In Ephesians and on and on. And so why is grace and peace such a prominent greeting in the early church? If it was just a mere formality, we would see more variation. We would see Paul's writings and Peter's writings mixing it up and changing it. If it was just a way of speaking. But we actually have the understanding that grace and peace are prominent because the way MacArthur put it, true saints live in the realm of grace and peace. As we mentioned earlier, all men start as enemies of God, hostile to God, opposed to God, following after the course of this world. But by grace, believers are reconciled to God through faith. The reconciliation, it's changing that hostile relationship with God and changing it to a friendly relationship. Those upon whom God bestows grace possess and experience his peace. Grace is the free, unearned favor of God showed to sinners, and peace is the new state of the relationship between that sinner and God. You have peace with God. And Peter here is praying that God would multiply the grace and peace of the believer. Both the grace and the peace of God are given and they are experienced by the believer. And time doesn't permit us to go today and survey all of the different ways that God's grace and peace are manifested in our lives. But I do want to look briefly both at how it is manifested in salvation, but also more fully how it's manifested in our life's experiences. And in salvation, we know this, that faith and life is a gift of God's grace. It is given not from works so that no one can boast. And peace with God, it is a gift of God's grace that is given in salvation, no longer enemies, but now children of God. But it's also seen and used in salvation in our daily experiences. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In John chapter 14, 
Verse 27, we know this. It says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We are in need of God's grace for the troubles in this life. We are in need of God's peace for the troubles in this life. He is saying, may grace and peace be yours in ever greater measure. But he's not saying something that you go and multiply and do for yourself, which makes sense because it is grace after all. Multiplied, it is a passive verb. This means this is something that is done to you. The actor of the giving of that multiplied grace is outside of us. It is God. We are dependent on the Lord to do this multiplying to us. That is why it is called, if you look on your handout, the gracious gift of God that has been bestowed to us in our salvation. Grace and peace. Grace and peace being multiplied to you is a gift that is God's act. He is the one who does it. It's for you and to you, and it's from God. But there is a danger that we must watch out for right now. There is a wrong belief that is common in the American culture today, and this is something that actually Fred alluded to and talked about in our Sunday school lesson. And I know undoubtedly that some of us in this room, many of us have actually seen variations of this. And this is the belief that holds that maturity and growth and holiness and God's grace and peace come when we ask God and he in turn zaps us and we receive it. We need wisdom, so we ask for wisdom and we wait for it to show up. We need freedom from an enslaving sin so we ask for it to be removed, and we wait for the desire to disappear. We want God's grace for help in a time of need, so we pray, and we sit back and wait. We want peace. We want the peace of God when our hearts are troubled, so we ask that he would make us calm. Each one of these are valid and right desires for someone to have, but Scripture tells us how we are to receive these things how we take these into our lives. And I tell you, it's not from some type of let go and let God mentality. Look at where Peter points. He says, grace and peace are multiplied in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace are multiplied in or through the full knowledge of God and of Christ. Of God and of Jesus Christ, unlike verse 1, this actually is referring to God the Father and also of Jesus Christ. And Peter refers to both here. So Peter's clear, like all areas of sanctification in our life, God doesn't just zap you and multiply grace and peace. Grace and peace is multiplied. It's multiplied in your life, in my life. It's multiplied in the life of those that Peter is making sure that they can remember this after he has left his earthly dwelling 
in the full knowledge of God. It is this idea of a full and rich and thorough and involving knowledge of another. This is understanding a degree of intimacy with God that is more than just understanding or knowing about him. And this is a common picture, but um, it's a great picture. You know, we know that a full knowledge is seen in the intimacy of a marriage relationship. The longer you share your life with your spouse, the more full your knowledge of your spouse becomes. The intimate knowledge with your spouse grows as you spend more time with your spouse and get to know him or her deeper. The longer you walk with God, the longer you walk with Christ, the more intimacy and the more full knowledge you gain with Christ. And as your intimacy and your knowledge of God grows, the peace and grace of God in your life exponentially grows and is multiplied. So let me repeat that. As your intimacy and knowledge of God grows, the peace and grace of God in your life exponentially grows. Now, you are undoubtedly familiar with the words of Christ in his prayer in John 17, where he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But get this, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Grace and peace are multiplied to the believer at salvation through the knowledge of God and of Christ. And grace and peace are multiplied throughout the life of the believer as their full knowledge of God and Christ continues to grow. So you can ask, am I growing in my intimacy, in my full knowledge of God and Christ? Think on this question. And hang tight, because we're going to actually continue this discussion of full knowledge in the next verse. Because grace and peace, it is, those are not the only gift that Peter ties to the full knowledge of Christ. Peter actually picks this up again in verse 3. As we see, the third gracious gift of God's salvation that he gives to us. It's the precious faith, grace and peace, but number three is life's needs. So read verse 3 with me, where it says, Grace and peace um, be multiplied to you, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Once again, we see something is given through the full knowledge of God. And I I love the way Peter actually describes God here in in this verse. He doesn't just say God, but instead, as if to underline the fact that the calling is not from us, Peter describes God as him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So the full knowledge of God 
is what ties verses 2 and 3 together. God is the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. And in verse 2, Peter prayed that grace and peace would abound in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Verse 3 explains the resources believers have through the full knowledge of God. Those who know God have everything they need for life and godliness. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Again, Peter is putting his finger on God's sovereignty, especially his sovereignty and salvation. The divine power, power that Peter references. I'm going to say the word in Greek, and you're going to immediately understand what it is saying. It's power, dunamis, where we get dynamite, right? Dynamite, it's a small but powerful explosive. The power residing in dunamis, the power that resides in something is tied to the virtue of its actual nature. The nature of something that is powerful has dunamis, this power. And God's power is a divine power. And God's divine power has granted to us something has given us something. Although it's a stronger verb here than, than just to give. If any of you parents have taken your children through a writing course or any writing curriculum, you can hear power words or strong verbs, and you teach your children to write with, with verbs that are strong and have a deeper understanding. And in this word right here, granted, is a strong verb. It's actually speaking of a past act that has already been completed and it's representing a gift that you currently have today. So the gift, it is still in the possession of the ones who received the granting. There's no strings attached to it. It's a permanent possession. It has been given purely by the grace of God. So brothers and sisters, I'm about to share with you the key of this passage that we're looking at right, right here. And this is one of the most profound truths that you will be able to find in Scripture. As we look at verse 3, and it says, See, so I want you to see this truth, that we have grace and peace multiplied to us, that God's divine power, the same power that caused the light to spring into existence out of the darkness of nothingness. The same divine power that in Ephesians 1.20 tells us that he worked in Christ by raising Christ from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The same divine power has granted, it has given away, it is completed and you cannot use it. This divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Pertaining to, pertaining to, it just simply means with reference to, 
Or you could say it has something to do with. And we all know what everything means. If we need, we can go down and get the the children's church down here and ask one of them, what does everything mean? Everything means everything. Everything that pertains or is in reference to or has something to do with life and godliness has already been granted to you and is in your possession if you are a child of God. Life and godliness, this gracious gift that God has bestowed on you and your salvation has been granted. And life, this is not the word bios, which is the things that are necessary for life. Food, shelter, water. This is zoe. Zoe is life in the sense of one who possesses the vitality and animation of life. We can all think and know of someone in our lives who, said, who we could say that person has vitality. They are animated. They, have, they are full of life. And this is what is being talked about here. And you could think of it just an illustration. Think of the Dallas Cowboys. If we just need someone to field a team, we need to win a few games, and we need to stay alive, if we need bios, we can send Dak Prescott out onto the field. If you want the fullness of a Super Bowl, Jerry Jones, we need you to get to work and bring us Zoe. Zoe, this is the life that he has granted to those who are his. You all know John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. Zoe. And what kind of life? That they may have it abundantly. Christ didn't come to keep you on a spiritual respirator. He came to give you a heart transplant. He came to replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And he gave you this new life and this new heart now. You currently are in the possession of all things pertaining to life. All things that pertain to possessing and experiencing an animated and full life. Both the eternal life that is to come, but also the abundant life here on earth. God has already granted it to you. It has been granted and is in your possession right now. And the same thing is true for godliness. Godliness, this encompasses both the worship of God. You could say he is a godly or a pious man. But it's also in the active obedience of God. He is godly. He's righteous now in the way that he lives. Both of these are encapsulated by this word. Godliness, it indicates a life that God would approve of. True and full knowledge of God in Christ produces grace and peace in life. And what is more, it produces holiness. It produces 
godliness. In the whole New Testament, it unites in denouncing and professing a faith which makes no difference in your behavior. And like the grace and peace of God, Peter specifies that all that we need pertaining to life and this godliness, it is from God. It is granted. And it's through the full knowledge of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to get incredibly practical here. Do you live your life as though right now you are in possession of all things pertaining to life and godliness? Do you have all things for a full, abundant life in your understanding? In your understanding, do you have all that you need for holy and godly living? If the answer is no, is it possible that you are not going to the source that Peter gives for finding these things? Where are all things pertaining to life and godliness found? It is in and through the intimate and full knowledge of God. What is the idol that your heart turns to? Where is it that your heart goes to to find answers in life? Where do you go for comfort when you are frustrated? What is your heart's recipe for happiness? Where do you look to for your list of qualities that you're looking for in a spouse or the definition of a successful career? According to Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are some things that God has chosen to keep from us and hold for himself. <clears throat> but the things that he has revealed in his word, the things that he has revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do the words of the law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And we all know Psalm 119, 105, that says that the word of God is what illumines and lights the path of our life for us to be able to walk down. It is the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path. All that we need for life he has provided for us, and it's through the knowledge of him as revealed in his word. All that we need for godliness, he has provided to us. It's through the full knowledge of him as revealed in his word. No, scripture does not tell you whether or not you should take this promotion. But it does tell you how you are to work for your employee. For your employer, it does tell you how you are to save up for future needs. It does tell you that you are to earn so you can provide for your family. It does tell you that you are to earn so that you will have extra to be able to give to the needs of others. Scripture tells you that you have a priority ministry in your house. It tells you that you have a priority ministry in your church. Scripture tells you not to forsake gathering together with, with the church body. 
so that if taking this new job would prevent you from doing any of those things, you cannot take it. Scripture gives you that direction on whether or not you should take the job. It tells you of your conscience and that to go against your conscience is sin. So does something about your job prick your conscience? Scripture speaks to what you should do. Your gut feeling is not knowing God. Your gut feeling is not your guiding principle. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word equips you for life. God's word equips you for godliness. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself looking elsewhere for the answers in your life, if you want to look in scripture to know what God has revealed, but you don't know where to start, if you can look at your own life and see that a life of godliness in an abundant life, it doesn't seem to align with the way that I live and the way that I know that it should, come to me. Come to your pastors. Come to the brothers and sisters that are mature and living the abundant life according to God's word. That is what they are here for. Our church is blessed with men and women who know their God and Savior intimately. Our church is blessed with pastors who know how to use God's word and show you how you too can grow in this full knowledge of God. Ephesians 4.11 calls them gifts to you for your equipping. Use them. The body, the people that are around you, they are given to you by God so that you may be built up. Use them. Don't just believe, but act upon the truth that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And it is through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. If you look at the way Peter describes this life in verses 3 and 4 and say, I don't see it. Act and go to God's word. Use the resources that he has given you and grow in the full knowledge of your God and your Savior. Now, at the end of verse Three going into four, we actually see where God speaks of his own glory and excellence. And he says, for by these, going into four, by these, by God's own glory and excellence, Peter gives us actually the fourth glorious and gracious gift of our salvation. And that fourth gift is glorious promises. By these, he has granted to us his precious 
in magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In verse 4, his own glory and excellence has granted to us, it's the same word both times, granting, but he has granted to us, meaning God in his resources, he has granted great and excellent promises, precious, magnificent promises. When God draws the sinner to himself, they not only see Christ, but they see Christ's glory as God. They also see his excellence as a man. This refers to the virtuous or moral life that he lived, his perfect humanity. In other words, by Christ, the fulfillment of these promises, we have received precious and magnificent promises. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises from God. It is in the character and the deeds of Christ that we have a revelation that is itself a promise. The promises are given not only in word, but also in deeds, the very deeds of Christ, the life that Christ lived. The very life of Christ among men with its glory and excellence. That is itself the promise in the life that is promised. We have the promises of Christ. Adam and Eve, they were promised a seed who would crush the head of, ser- of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Abraham was promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. David was promised that one would sit on his throne forever. Isaiah was promised that one would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins in Isaiah 53. David was also promised in Psalm 16 that God would raise him from the dead and not allow his body to experience decay. Christ promised forgiveness to the sinful, rest to the weary, comfort for the sad, hope for the dying, and life to the dead. And Peter here describes all of these salvation promises in Christ as precious and magnificent. All these promises of God, the resurrection of life in John 11, the spiritual life in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, forgiveness also in Ephesians 1, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, guidance in John 16, help in Isaiah 41, instruction in Psalm 32, wisdom in James 1, heaven in John 14. Each one of these promises are promises that are received and fulfilled in Christ. Christ's glory as God His excellence as the perfect man embody the greatest of his promises. And you can look at verse 4 and see, though, what the end goal of these great promises are. So that by them, by these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Believers will share in the divine nature in that they will be morally perfected. 
They will share, share in the moral excellence that belongs to God. Simply, what God commands 70 times in Leviticus, be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God is holy. We will see that ultimately completed and accomplished. We will have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We escaped when we were freed from slavery to sin in Ephesians 2, but we will be escaped or we will escape when we have been made a new creation. We will escape when we are freed from this body of sin and death and the promise of the new heaven and the new earth will be made complete and the promise of the incorruptible body will be ours. If you are God's, God has graciously given you glorious promises. Christ is the ultimate manifestation of the greatest promise. And he has more promises ahead of you, for you. Through the promises of Christ, through Christ himself, the ultimate embodiment of these promises, we have escaped the corruption that is in this sinful world. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will escape that corruption. The day will come where the Lord will bring us home. Until that time, cling to Christ. Cling to his word. Grow in your full knowledge of your God and your Savior. And experience the precious faith he has given you. The grace and peace that he has given you. Life's needs that he has given you. And the glorious promises that he has given you. Let's pray. Our God, our Master, our Savior, we pray that you would conform our hearts, conform our minds to your word, and may we grow in a full knowledge and understanding of you. We pray that you would make us more like the divine nature that you have called us to. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.